Hello from wherever in the world you're listening in from, welcome back to the show. And for all of you listening in for the first time, it truly is an honor to have you joining us. You're tuning in to the show that is giving me the undeserved but highly appreciated opportunity to speak to incredible individuals and some of the greatest minds that I've come across, who have all decided to dedicate their life to creating a positive impact on the world around them. And on the Roots Roots podcast, I look to uncover how their family roots and those all-important pivotal moments in their upbringing have influenced the legacy that they want to leave behind. Today's guest is Peter Monteza. He's the half-Peruvian, half-Arabic founder and CEO of MyArk, the fitness platform that is hell-bent on making fitness accessible, applicable, and affordable to everyone. That is a tagline I've come up with myself, so Peter, if you want to use it, then you can drop me a message anytime. As Peter shares in more detail during this episode, fitness has had a huge impact on his life, physically and mentally, and it's even become his source of purpose after he went from obese to a national-level athlete in the space of two years. And for any of you that have ever downloaded a workout plan or used a fitness app, MyArk has truly come out as a game-changer. Not only has it allowed thousands of its consumers to finally have access to personalized routines that actually adapt and change to the user's development, but the platform is also changing the lives of the users on the other side. In one special case, one of MyArk's first creators on the platform has already gone from living off minimum wage in a council flat to now making over six figures thanks to MyArk. Real people, real change. But in this episode... I unpack Peter's remarkable story, and it's only once you learn just what risks he took and the opportunities he gave up along the way will you realize how impressive it really is. Expect to learn the backstory of the Peruvian side of his family, the positive influence of his mum's strong character and hard work, dealing with abuse because of his mixed heritage and obesity, his obsession with fitness, and just what he went through to get Mayak off the ground. If you're someone who's inspired by a story of resilience and what some people are ready to sacrifice for something that they really believe can positively change the world, then this one's for you. Don't forget that if you're listening but not yet subscribed, there's a chance you may miss other episodes when they get published. So, more than just to make me happy, if you want to support the show and in turn carry on increasing the quality of the guests and the content, it takes just under two seconds to subscribe on wherever you're listening. But now, I'm excited to welcome Peter Monteza. Peter, welcome to Roots to Roots. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So we've only met once, mm-hmm. but you know it's become clear to me that as I've developed the show out and kind of niched down on exactly what I'm looking for, mm. there's people that I know from first meeting them, that there's something in them that makes me want to find out more. And I think it ties back into this idea that when people are doing things that are referred to, and many people refer to as change-making initiatives, from the little you've told me about your background, you know, it fascinates me to know how those things are linked. What is the story of Peter going back to the generations before? What is that journey that got you to where you are today? Yeah, it's a very deep, <laughs> loaded question, but my family is from Peru and they came to the UK in, I'd say, uh, yeah, late 90s, actually. Uh, my mother was a teenager when she came here uh, and had my brother very, very young. Um, and for context, yeah, my brother and I are the first ones in our family, kind of history, et cetera, to go to university. 
Um, and yeah, it's a very wild upbringing uh, because, you know, I grew up with my mom, my auntie and my grandma uh, in a very like Peruvian first kind of household where you have like ceviche with every meal. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's a very like, oh, they don't, you don't sleep until very late. You have food late. It's a very different to what my kind of like British English friends uh, you know, it'd have supper six o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> My dinner would be like nine, ten o'clock. Uh, very loud household as well. Very energetic, uh, beautiful heritage with like music and dancing, etc. which, you know, as a kid, I was always kind of indoctrinated to that with Peruvian music, etc. And I think a lot of stuff from, I guess, my mom hustling very young, uh, you know, trying to bring up two kids by herself basically in london which is not the most it's not the cheapest city in yeah. the world kind of instilled in my brother and i um you know kind of hard work and her motto has always been like oh where there's a will there's a way and you can make it happen you just have to figure it out uh, it doesn't matter if you don't have the answers right now you can do it you just have to go and start and i think that's always from a young age has been like uh ingrained in my head just mm. seeing her you know like do loads of different jobs uh anything to kind of put food on the table etc and in inventive stuff as well you know she knows five languages my mom um so you can start monetizing that by yeah. being a translator or helping etc um she's very good at with people skills and i think i've been able to network well because i just learned from how she even in restaurants the way she builds rapport with like waiters waitresses the restaurant owners etc to give us like cool deals or just make us feel like oh we can get special uh discounts or whatever um it was all just from being very nice she has like really good charisma very energetic and i've just i think as a kid i was like trying to be a parrot and just yeah. trying to like mimic that or mirror it rather and i think i've just taken that into like adult life so yeah i think that's a very a good place to start was the upbringing of you know not growing up with a father, not growing up with, on my other side of the heritage, which is the Saudi Arabian side, um, just simply growing up with, you know, my grandma, auntie, and mom, and my older brother, of course. Um, I think, yeah, I'd start from there, and I'd start from looking at the hustle culture that was instilled from a young age, seeing my mom have to work super, super hard to raise two boys in central London, west London as well, kind of like set up the stage for, you know, being good at academics, being good at sports, and trying to be good at startups now. I was going to add that context. So you have the Peruvian and Arabic influence within your blood, but clearly the Peruvian side has dominated sort mm -hmm. of the culture and even probably part of the identity. Mm. I just want to go one step back. So your mom and her generation, they were born in Peru, right? Mm -hmm. What inspired or what influenced that side of the family to leave Peru and come to the UK? It was actually mainly my mom who did that okay. so she was young and she wanted to travel and yeah she left uh peru she grew up on a farm in, in peru which is very different wow. yeah uh, and yeah when she went to greece when she was a teenager she picked up greek very quickly like within six seven months she's very good at languages um but yeah she's the one who came to 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 the uk um met my father i think i said like the only place where a saudi and a latina meet is in <laughs> london hence why i'm here and yeah her life kind of just uh, changed when she had my my brother uh, and then knew she had to kind of stay in London and then 
bringing over like my auntie and my you know my grandma would come here and there because she loves peru she's very like peru first and like viva peru yeah um doesn't like the weather here and i understandable I un- yeah. understand but my grandma kind of just would come you know maybe half the year and then go back to peru to kind of help with the family etc you touched earlier on this you know idea of from the youth that you had and what you remember of you know the character traits of your mum. one was the kind of always looking for that opportunity and you know built within that is this idea of resilience and of what i know about peru i mean for centuries but even looking at the last century it was kind of flooded with a lot of conflict by the surrounding borders and i know that's changed i think in recent decades where now we're getting to a place where the country's going through quite a good economic uh, sort of upturn but do you ever sense that from you know your mom or the, the previous generations that being in a place that was filled with quite a lot of conflict has built this you know whether indirectly these innate character qualities of needing to deal with being resilient and you know dealing with constant change yeah totally i think if you grow up in a very like nurtured environment where everything's provided for you i i don't think you're going to be someone who is who's naturally going to like pick themselves back up when they have setbacks or for lack of a better word eat a lot of shit mm. and and still uh, keep yeah. progressing and powering through so yeah i think that that definitely molded her i think people in the region as well i mean you have stories for example like even in the premier league of like footballers who from you know colombia etc who would travel four hours to training no football shoes had their first and then now they're in the prem right like right. there is a big resilience in south america because of all the troubles they faced obviously all stemming from colonialism but we won't go into that yeah. um so no, yeah that has come up on the show a number of times yeah. but yeah yeah it, it's all it's it, it does stem from that so yeah do you know the story of how your parents actually came to me and what was the view of from either side of mm. you know these two different cultures or these completely two different backgrounds coming together was it quite accepted in terms of yeah. expectations for family i think even though like you know south america is very you know catholic first etc and then saudi's obviously on with islam there's still quite a lot of similarities between the cultures you know they both love food they both uh value family a lot they have generations living in the same households as well so it's there's a lot of similarities mm. uh between the two but i think yeah my mom was very open to you know i think she called herself a muzo christian okay <laughs> so she was like happy to do both practice both um and yeah it was just she just loved both uh cultures um but i yeah like i said i didn't grow up with that side of the culture too much so i don't really i it's funny cuz people always say to me even when I'm people from peru or they're from south america they're like oh you look way more arab or right. you why don't you speak arabic or like i don't feel like as accepted well i'd say accepted is not right but I, I i i don't feel like i belong to peruvian culture as much mm-hmm. and i don't and i definitely don't belong to uh south arabian culture much cuz i don't a, I don't speak the language i've never been there um so i'm kind of in this weird hybrid mix of like maybe i'm just a londoner yeah yeah, yeah. well i mean <laughs> yeah there's you know that whole third culture kid perspective where you know there's a lot of benefits where you kind of get to pick and choose from not pick and choose but you, you get both you know cultures and values and then of that you can kind of mold a bit of what you believe in or what you stand for but then the other side of it is you're not really one or the other and yeah. you know did you ever feel in your upbringing either through your school environment uh, or even amongst family that there was a bit of this separation or like identity clash and and how did that affect your childhood 
Yeah, I would say I didn't see other people like myself in in schools, etc. And I could even tell that when I'd bring like pack lunch, and it would it wouldn't be like you know a ham and cheese sandwich. It would be like a thermostat full of like right. very seasoned chicken and rice and, and stuff like that. I mean, it was great, yeah. um, but that would A, could get made fun of, et cetera, until they tried it and then yeah. they wanted to barter and trade <laughs> their sandwiches or whatever they had. Um, but yeah, it was, it was always like, yeah, my household was very different. So when I'd visit like friend's house when I was younger, I would be very like confused as to like, oh, how come my house isn't like this? Or, you know, it's very quiet here. It's very this and that. And then when you enter my house, it's like a different world. Like no. you've just been transported to another part of, of the world, right? Um, so I, I would say it shaped it in that way, but I was just observing and would just see different people's cultures, backgrounds, et cetera, and just start to be like, all right, cool. I'm different. It's fine. Mm. Um, they're different to me. It, it doesn't matter as much. Um, obviously, growing up and, and doing sports, I had like a lot of, because uh, it was competitive, et cetera. There was a lot of like racial slurs my way, etc. Right. But they they they'd get the geography wrong. So they <laughs> they'd say like um, uh, the derogatory term for someone who's Pakistani, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm not from there, <laughs> but it, you're still trying to hurt me by because I'm different, or I look different, or the color of my skin's different, or I have thicker eyebrows. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll be interested to know how many people watching this then rewind and try and zoom into eyebrows. And be like, <laughs> they're not even that thick. Did you, do you think that a lot of this, like you said, these slurs, do you think it came from a place of malice or ignorance? Ignorance. Yeah. I strongly believe that if people were better educated and traveled and experienced other cultures, they would see a lot of similarities with theirs mm. and also just see people. They wouldn't see whatever they've kind of been indoctrinated with or brainwashed with. Uh, I don't think people truly hate. Yeah. I think they're taught uh, taught to hate. And I feel like if people just traveled more or got to experience a lot more culture, which is why I think London isn't as bad for like, there is definitely bad racism in London, but it's not as bad as other places I visited. Yeah. Um, because a lot of like the schools that you go to, et cetera, you have a lot of different like diversity with amongst students. And that's a great thing because then you get to learn from a young age, oh, he's just like me, she's just like me, even though the color of the skin is different, they eat different foods uh, and, and so forth. So I think being able to just experience lots of different types of people yeah. and not have like a homogenous, you know, like all your friends are like a specific uh, ethnicity or background. Like if all your friends are from like Swindon and they're all born and raised in Swindon and you've never met someone from Bangladesh, then you're going to have views about them but it's completely false. Yeah. And what were your what were your friendship groups like? Were there any similarities? Like were they from certain backgrounds or certain mindsets that you notice? So I guess it just depends on your environment and the school. It's like you don't really choose your friends, I say, in the beginning. Like you're kind of like, uh, right. you're put in an environment and then you kind of like befriend who's ever there. Um, not to say I don't have any friends. <laughs> um, but I, I'd say a lot of them were, yeah, from different backgrounds, like Greek, Russian, Turkish, Indian, and then yeah, and, and and English and British. So like, I was happy with that because I got to always like try nice different foods. Right. And I was a big foodie, so I still am. So for for me, it was really nice to to be able to experience all of that. So I never kind of, anytime I'd hear these stereotypes about people or see like propaganda or right wing media, even at a young age, or even on newspapers, etc. I would just be very confused. I said, that doesn't make sense to me. Or like, it's illogical. Like, I don't know how they've come to that. So yeah, because I was, exp I had like exposure to different cultures. Yeah. It was much harder for, for me to accept these wild views. Well, I would say these are wild views. 
Yeah. Did you notice any differences in, um, or yeah, any stark differences between going to a household of someone who is typically British versus mm-hmm. going to say the household of a families from different backgrounds? I would feel more at home with the family from different backgrounds yeah, yeah. because it's very similar. Like uh, it's loud. It's very. There's a lot more energy. There's there's always food cooking. You can smell the spices and, and the seasoning, etc. Where I've had like uh, people who come to my house, like uh, who have like English British backgrounds, and they would be, "Why does it smell in here?" What? I was like, "Oh, what do you mean? Why does it smell in here? It's just it's just food." Yeah. yeah Why is yeah. that a bad thing? <laughs> and I know it's um, it was from a previous episode, but it really struck to me, which was um, the idea of hospitality. Again, not to generalize too much, mm. but this uh, someone that I had on in season two he was saying that when he first went to his best friend's house, who was a, a British guy, they didn't even offer him like water, right? And it, <laughs> it wasn't out of, again, insult. It was just, you know, it wasn't even a thing. Whereas he's like, you know, if someone comes to my house, my mom's like, get him this, get him that, make sure he's fed. Like, has he eaten? And even if he's just eaten, I'll get him some more food. And then you realize like how many of these indirect influences around, in this case, hospitality of yeah. just people in general, right? It's different. Well, I guess from that region is a much more of like a sharing culture. And, yeah. and when I visit other countries uh, that isn't particularly Western, et cetera, there's much more like community. I feel like London, cities like that, New York, et cetera, it's not very like community driven or first where like, it's kind of like, I need to win for myself and do this. I'm not going to do X, Y, Z. And I think that plays a big part into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even in my household, my family would get angry if my friend hasn't been fed. I'd be upset if they don't finish the food. I'd be like, no, you have to eat it. Okay, take it in a Tupperware, go. Um, which would never be the case if I was to visit. Right. Um, I'd say more of like, yeah, the English, English friends. Yeah. And so you had a bit more of a, a linear route through school in terms of the the setup that you had for going into school and university, right? It was, yeah, it was just straight school, GCSEs, A-levels, university. Yeah, I was... Uh, struggling a lot with my I'd say physical health because I was obese growing up actually childhood obesity is still rising in the UK and I was eating like my mom would make very good food like healthy food etc but I think I was just a just eating too much like and also like if you're a single mother it's hard to do a lot of things at once so it's it's hard to get a lot of things right especially if you're young right imagine a single mother, early 20s, raising two kids mm. and trying to get money in, etc. Like it becomes very hard to balance a lot of things. So I think, and nutrition is a very difficult thing that pe- people still struggle with, with like macronutrient, like understanding macronutrients, the breakdown, how that affects uh, people and also genetic differences as well, right? Like different genetic uh, backgrounds because of ethnicities will have different metabolic, uh, you know, different metabolisms yeah so the way that they can metabolize carbs fats it changes pers- it's very personalized and we kind of unfortunately had you know both of us my brother and i were obese as kids um and that was quite tough i think from just like a another thing of differentiating you not just you're not just like uh this you know brown kid with a unibrow you're also really really large right um, so it's another point of differentiation or something to help you stick out, which kind of makes you act that a bit in school. I think as you're a kid growing up, because if you get insulted or stuff like that, like you feel like you have to say something or prove something. Yeah. Uh, and that was an unfortunate side effect of just being different. I think it's much more inclusive now, which is great. And there's a lot less bullying in schools. But yeah, uh, it, it was another point of, uh, I think, differentiation 
but it also helps shape, I guess, what I even do now, which we can get into. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting point that you bring up because I've talked about this in previous episodes, but there's a book called The Triple Package by Amy Chua. And what it does is it characterizes some of the disproportionate success that we see amongst certain groups of individuals from certain backgrounds. And it focuses on the situation in the US, but the three characteristics it covers is believing you have this superiority complex of the, the culture you come from and impulse control. So being able to delay gratification and that, you know, in certain cultures you see where so much effort is put into education. Mm -hmm. But the third one is inferiority mm -hmm. complex, right? Where I think especially when you are a person from a background in a country that's not your own and you are quote unquote a minority, you kind of all carry around this this sense that you might be inferior to those around you, but also the sort of families that we're raised in, you know, it's always, why didn't you get 99% if you got 95? Or, you know, why didn't you get an A if you got a B? And so it's always kind of chasing to be better, where that inferiority can push you to do more. But I think the other point that you're adding there is even also having a, a weight issue and the bullying that you get as a result internally, it can, you can internalize that inferiority even more. Did you find that that helped drive you to want to prove people that, yeah. that you have more to offer? Yeah, totally. Like I would use it as even motivation to lose weight, which is quite not, I mean, I don't think it's the best uh, mindset to have, but yeah, I'd, I'd get very focused on something and I just have tunnel vision and just do whatever I can to, 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 to achieve that. Especially with the weight loss, uh, I remember going like researching as much as possible as even as like a 10, 11, 12 year old, like trying to become an expert in, in that uh, and teaching myself a lot about it. And then also just training so, so much, um, like almost three times a day. It, it, I mean, it wasn't sustainable, obviously, um, but it was just to, you know, A, prove people wrong and B, achieve something that I know I could achieve. Uh, and yeah, it became a bit of an obsession. And I think what you, you, you've raised a good point that inferiority complex uh, makes you feel like you have to prove it even more and you work even harder to try and get there. I think, yeah, my brother's very similar as well. Like we both, uh, we'd even compete with each other. Like he was a bit older. Um, so physically he'd always be a bit stronger, of, of course. But I'd always try and like benchmark, okay, if he got this in A-levels or GCSEs or whatever, I need to get this or... It's healthy-ish comp uh, there, but it just shows that like, you know, we we both want to be like, you know, top of the top or try our absolute best to, you know, achieve, you know, academically, sports-wise, physically, everything basically. And on that, you say that you went from obese to national level athlete in two years. Yeah, I was running a lot uh, and I think that helped to yeah. A, to lose weight, but also just, I was just running so so much and it was for like national youth level so like doing nationals when you're aged i think 15 etc so competing against because i started winning like uh the borough races in like westminster champion etc for um athletics or country then it would be like more of like the london thing and then qualifying for nationals to compete against other people um with that and yeah that was bizarre because two years prior to that you know i could i wasn't very good uh, mm. even like doing like a 10 minute jog um so that was quite the journey but i guess that's an extreme version of how i pushed myself to go from like uh 
you know, a very low level to like competing with like, you know, kids who are probably now like, you know, running professionally or athletes uh, or Olympians maybe. Um, yeah, so to be even in like, you know, a bracket like that at a young age um, was was quite was quite a roller coaster and quite crazy. Uh, but it's kind of, again, testament to the inferiority complex that you have to push yourself. It wasn't just going to be, oh, yeah, you can just normally lose weight and do it slowly. It was no, like, this is all or nothing. No. And that becomes toxic, I think, to an extent. It's a double-edged sword. Did you see that influence come directly or indirectly through your family? Was that very much a mindset? I know you, you touched on your mother's sort of character traits, but this desire to push all out to the best that you can, is that something you see that was just instilled in you from an early age? Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember even in like parents meetings, uh, if a teacher would say something bad, I think I would feel the pressure coming right. of like, okay, I need to like do well. Um, and I think there was something in me that like, I also want to make family proud, everyone proud, which means, okay, I need to achieve above and beyond and and go the extra mile. And it was just like, I think that's carried on even into adult life where, I, I I'll beat up I'll beat myself up a lot if I don't like push myself or like you know ex- exceed or try and get this and so, some things that are even unattainable. Mm. Um, I I think I still carry to say I'm more I'm self aware of it now uh, that you know I'm I'm pushing myself from this kind of uh, complex and I, and I need to learn to kind of like you know be okay where like it doesn't have to be zero to a million very quickly or zero to a hundred rather. Um, and be able to do it in a more sustainable way. So I think, yeah, you'd even have things like body dysmorphia where, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not uh, as lean as I used to be or I'm not as athletic as I used to be. And then I get, okay, I need to start and I need to make my own training program again. And I'd yeah. be like, wait, I need to take a step back. I was like, I'm not competing anymore. I'm not trying to do this anymore. I, I, can, I should do something that works for me and my lifestyle um, where, you know, work takes up most of my day. So what can I do? in that short time frame to you still enjoy my fitness and not be like, I need to get a PB every time I run or I need to do right. this and, and do that, etc. The big thing you're working on now is my arc. And that is in the fitness space to influence others to go on a journey to improve their own, whether it's, you know, whatever target they've set themselves physically and even mentally. Was that a natural progression that you made from your education years or did something come before? After so, I finished. Uh, I, I studied management science at UCL. Um, I did masters with it as well. It was very data, data heavy, data analytics, um, very quantitative subject, etc. Uh, and it was also quite practical with like um, business challenges and all that sort of stuff. And that got me kind of understanding how businesses work a lot better. I always had a lot of ideas that I wanted to do in the fitness space. Just things that would frustrate me. Like the first thing I started ages ago during uni was something called um, smart bells, where yeah. I would attach uh, IoT type sensors onto like a dumbbell, have it magnetized so that it could just track my sets. I was taking like a piece of paper to write notes and that sort of stuff uh, for my reps. And I wanted to see data and how I'm progressing. And I just hated manually tracking it. So I wanted to put, you know, make smart bells. And I was going gym to gym, like a door-to-door salesman, trying to see if they'd be interested in something like that. And this was during uni. And then it kind of pivoted into something uh, where we'd use uh, computer vision so i was like hmm i don't have the money to buy loads of sensors or have a production team or unit or whatever what if i can use software to do the same thing and that's mm. where um the first version of this company started which was um using ai to track your body 
So instead of having sensors on the weights, instead it would just track uh, through the camera of any iPhone or any smartphone rather, you know, your range of motion, your reps, your sets as you go up and down, your squatting or shoulder pressing, whatever exercise we kind of programmed. And that was going quite well. That was straight after uni. And I had uh, secured a job, two jobs actually, Accenture and Deloitte for consulting. So I was going to go uni then straight to that. But then this just kind of like, I wasn't excited about that, but I was very excited about this because I was building something. I was going around again, gym to gym, trying to sell things to personal trainers, to the gyms. And it was going well. I had loads of managers sign letters of intent, people wanting to do the free trial, uh, to do the trial. So we had about like six, 7,000 people who were ready to kind of tr- roll it out into the gym. And then uh, COVID hit and we were a B2B play. Like we wanted to put it in the gyms, licenses to the gyms, et cetera. And then, yeah, when the gyms closed, we had to kind of like take a step back and like, ah, uh, what, what can this develop into? Um, and then my co-founder, still my co-founder today, Arahan, took a job because he comes from a uh, an Asian background mm. and f- both his parents, I believe, are doctors. And he did Imperial Engineering. Sorry, he did engineering at Imperial. So there was a very big emphasis. He needs to get a job. And he had a job lined up for investment investment banking at Barclays. And he he didn't take it. And, wow. and that was a, yeah, I, th- I think it's even harder in like an Indian household to say no to that. Um, so he we did it for like a year and a bit. But then COVID hit. His parents kind of wanted him to get a job. Um, and he did. He got like a software. He was working in a software uh, agency, developing products for loads of other companies and startups, which is ironic because we wanted to develop this. So I was kind of by myself for a year, uh, doing, uh, trying to like iterate and trying to get something, and that was very tough and difficult. But I think it comes back to the mindset of like, why didn't I just just drop it and just mm-hmm. chill in the pandemic and just start my cushy job at Accenture or, or Deloitte? take that nice start bonus but something in me was like nah like i can't put this aside i like i need to just do it i need to find a different way or like yeah <laughs> so it goes back to the childhood thing right yeah and actually touching on that exact point and it's something that comes up again in the book the triple package which i think is really poignant to note what it says is that some of those exact same characteristics and values that help people to have succeeded from when they come from these particular backgrounds can also be very imprisoning in the way they define success. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that, you know, coming from backgrounds where it is all about pushing yourself and, you know, dealing with that inferiority complex to always strive to be the best, it still usually goes down a more conventional route of success, right? So the the well-respected job or the high-paying salary, right? Careers like doctors, mm. engineers, lawyers. A lot of the time with these type of jobs, there is normally a ceiling at which success has its height. And this is where it's something that I refer to as the difference between meaning and money. When someone like yourself decides that exactly as you've communicated, you have the desire to pursue a meaning behind what you do or a purpose um, because it's something you strongly believe in at the sacrifice of, uh, you know, as you've said, a high paying job. Sometimes it's either not really understood by people from our community or background, or you're just going to have to deal with a lot of pushback and, you know, moving hurdles out the way in order to pursue this. Did you see that situation happen within your either community or your immediate family, where there was this, you know, almost frowning or pushback when you were pursuing this route of meaning over money? At first, it was a tiny bit with family, but my grandma is just like, yeah, do what you want. <laughs> Mainly with my mom, but 
she was actually very supportive. And I think she just has a lot of confidence and trust in me to just figure things out. Because, you know, she couldn't help with GCSEs, A-levels, university rather, uh, either. And I was able to get really good grades, a first class from UCL. And she kind of like backs it to be like, yeah, okay, I trust you. You know, you can do it. And again, she's always got that where there's a will, there's a way. You can achieve it. Um, you can do it. So it's very supportive. That. And I think what was more difficult was, I guess, people around me. Mm. And it's like, oh, a lot of people that I've graduated with are going into these jobs, et cetera, or they're asking, you know, oh, you know, are you still working on a little project? It's it's like demeaning things like that. And to be like, oh, how's that little uh, thingy going? Like, oh, are you looking for a job still? Are you, are you going to apply for jobs? In my head, I'm like, this is my job. Like, mm. I'm, this is what I do. And it used to, it used to irritate me or it used to get under my skin and, and sometimes question be like, why aren't I doing this? Like, shouldn't I just do this for two, three years, like get a, a job in the city and then, you know, get the down payment on the house and, and do that. But I think I got to a point where I was like, you know what, it's fine. I'm very, I, I'm, I enjoy what I'm doing. Like I feel, even though I'm, I, you know, in this, in the beginning, not making any money from it or not being able to pay myself a salary, any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was very tough, but I felt happy doing it. There's obviously a lot of horrible dark moments within that, but I still felt happy doing it. And I felt like I could see the purpose behind it. I, I was working towards a vision. I still am working towards a vision, but I just felt like I was part of something bigger. Whereas when I had like these job offers or even a university, I didn't feel like this was giving me anything or meaning or like, I don't feel happy doing it. And so I started asking myself, okay, what do I actually feel happy doing? And it was this, and it wasn't that. So for me, it was much, it became then, oh yeah, I don't care what anyone says now. They can have their opinions. They can do that, you know, but deep down, I know that I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And then enough time passes where they start asking you, oh, how did you do it? In terms of like, how do you start a company? How do you, you know, bring a product to market or how do you do this? But it was the same people who would say, how's a little side project going? How's a little project uh, demeaning it, et cetera, who actually are not happy in their existing jobs. And, and fair enough, because like those jobs are tough, right? Like investment banking is tough. Consulting is tough. Being a lawyer is tough. And a lot of people don't get much meaning from it. It's more of like the status, which again, comes down to what you were saying before, about like family pushing you for that because you need to be respected. Uh, and also just amongst your university peers of like, this is what capitalism is, right? Like who's going to have the most money? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And, you know, in the city is a, is a very good catalyst for that. So people just go into it. You know, I had friends who were studying like chemistry, biology, who are just in asset management and investment right. banking, which doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Why do you think your grandma was so accepting? I think... Because she's she's lived a long enough life to just know what really matters in life. Mm. And for her, yeah, I think like things like cars, money, like it doesn't really matter. What she just enjoys the most is being with family. I like that. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, on this journey, there were some dark moments. Mm. What did you mean by that? Yeah, like, um, yeah, take your time. A bit of water. <laughs> yeah, all the time you need. Yeah, I'd say, um, like I said, right, I wasn't able to 
So like I wasn't able to pay myself, etc. And I remember we were getting to a point where like this no longer was sustainable. My my co-founders were part-time. I was the only full-time person. And we were trying to raise money at the time just so everyone could come full-time at least because I, I couldn't do it anymore uh, by myself. I needed people to help. Even though we had like a really shitty live product out there, it was making some money. There was good traction for it to understand that like if people are literally paying for it and, and some people are making thousands from it, there's something here and with the right, you know, resources behind it, AKR time, we could really take it off, etc. So I remember before getting our first investors who were tech stars, a really amazing accelerator. I'd say them and Y Combinator are probably the best in the world. So it's very hard to get their, their investment. I saw there was this event called uh, Web Summit where like loads oh, of yeah. uh, investors, startups, everyone just goes to it. And I remember uh, looking at my account and thinking like, I cannot uh, afford this. And I met this guy who went to my uni um, and he was in a startup um, named Parham. And he told me about this event and he says, oh, I, I have a guy who's selling a ticket at a discount. And that was a big risk I took because it was basically all the money left in my account wow. um, to get that ticket. To go to Lisbon and then, yeah, even the Airbnb I stayed in was terrible. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like the bathroom didn't work. I'd have to go to the bathroom downstairs in the cafe to use. Like it was horrendous and but there was no hot water. So like you'd have to shower with very cold water and then head over and you'd be there from eight, like eight, nine-ish a.m. until like 6 p.m. and then there's the after events we try and meet as many investors yeah. as possible yeah so i was doing that non-stop even trying to go to like the old networking events until like 1 2 a.m and then back into this horrible hostel shower uh wake up for 7 8 trying to go back in again so it was like five days straight of that yeah it was tough and in my head i was like ah uh, this is a, a failure <laughs> like i didn't get anything like i thought oh i'd meet someone and they'd sign a check straight away like it didn't happen that way but i did meet people from Techstars very very briefly and they just gave me an email and i messaged that email they gave me another email i messaged that email another one another one another one and so and i just kept knocking on the door i just kept okay. following up as much as possible my mom had this saying baby que no llora no mama which means like baby that doesn't cry doesn't get fed so i was just like i'm just gonna keep uh crying out here in these emails etc and eventually someone saw it and they're like oh um send the deck and then we had a call and then uh, we showed them the product demo as again uh, even though it was a very shit version of it they still liked it a lot because they were just uh starting to get into fitness and then they sent it over to our um our md our now md from techstars um and he liked yeah he liked the look of it and it, the application was closed and they were like you know what even though it's closed uh we, we'll put just fill out the application anyways and we'll put you into the uh to the next round and then the last 20 because they only take 10 companies for the year and yeah the last pitch was at like because th these guys are based in melbourne australia the last pitch was at like sorry our pitch was at 4 a.m wow <laughs> and i remember like i was like all right i'll sleep at midnight wake up at like three-ish and then yeah i just remember like it's kind of down to this like I, because i remember my co-founder would be starting a job uh, he because he's told his parents okay if we don't do it by like if we don't have something by like uh, February in investment. And this was happening in January, 2022. So the, the pitch was 
the 14th of January 2022, I think. Okay. And uh, he told his dad, oh, if we don't have investment, I'll get a job, etc. And then we found out, yeah, like uh, the 28th of January that we got it. Um, and I remember just breaking down. When you were going through those days in the web summit, and you know, it sounds like one hell of a graft. What stopped you from stopping? My belief in the vision of what we're trying to build and the fact that if we had the correct resources, we could execute and, and do really well. Um, and even to this day, we've done a lot with very, very little. Like a lot of companies, I think to get to the stage we are now, have raised a lot of money and you know have had big, huge teams. Um, to this day, like only two people are still coding, right? On on the like my two technical co-founders, and we've yeah we've hit certain metrics that you would expect other companies who have raised over like you know a few million to hit that. And maybe yeah, maybe us you know people from these backgrounds do a lot more with less, uh, and maybe that's what we've been kind of again ingrained to do, like do as much as you can with as little as possible, which can be annoying because <laughs> um, it sometimes makes you like more frugal, but. Maybe in startups, you should be a tiny bit more frugal instead of trying to spend loads of... Because we didn't have the luxury of being able to spend on ads and all that sort of stuff. So we've been able, we, we've had to find inventive ways to just try and grow organically. Um, we couldn't have like SEO specialist or like website optimization specialist to like improve. Like we had to figure everything out mm. ourselves um, and become very inventive with and resourceful. I think resourceful is a key word here. Yeah. Um, I, and I think throughout my childhood... Uh, I, I learned to be resourceful and that has translated into this. It's just like, okay, we don't have like a team to manage like creators, et cetera, uh, at the time. How do we make the, this look like a much more professional thing? You know, what's our outbound system? It's almost like B2B sales. It's like kind of setting everything up and just learning on the go and then iterating on that and just putting it out there. I, I think being resourceful and forces you to be creative and inventive because you have no other choice. You either find a way to do it or you don't. No, I love that. There's a book called Dare to Lead and it talks about the idea of courage and vulnerability going hand in hand uh, because to have the courage to do something, you have to put yourself in a position where you feel vulnerable because that's what courage is born out of. And, you know, just to define vulnerability, it's, you know, when when you're in this feeling that you're in the line of fire or you're in the line of risk because of actions or outcomes that you can't control. And, um, you know, I think this is the epitome of, of showing that courage. And it also talks about normally there's one or two values that people really stand by that helps them maintain that courage. So you mentioned resourcefulness. Is there another value that you see as really striking that you've noticed, again, you know, in yourself or, or through the upbringing that you've had that's really helped you carry through to this, you know, now success that you're seeing? Yeah, uh, I would say being able to keep standing up after a lot of shit has come your way and then just trying to be objective about it and understand why it was a setback and then how do I avoid or how do I learn from this and then keep learning from this and just keep pushing and taking, I think ego is a thing that you have to kind of dismantle in this mm. world where like if you don't care that you're going to look like an idiot or you don't care that you're not going to get things right, that's that's almost like a superpower. If you just put your ego to the side and, and learn uh, and and don't be afraid to make mistakes, then it will suck in the beginning for a bit or like you'll look like an idiot for a bit. But 
over time it will compound and you'll start to become an expert in that or you, you gain mastery within whatever that domain is but you have to put your ego to the side and i think perseverance alongside that uh, really helps and even when you say things like success i still don't think there's a lot of success yet and i have a lot of friends or even my partner saying they're like oh you should feel like this has become successful etc in my head it's not successful yet and there's still a lot to do and um so yeah maybe i'm imprisoned by that success that what you said <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm very proud of all the obstacles we've you know overcome uh, I, I'm very happy that we've been able to do that. Me and my team, Arahan, Nikhil, uh, as yeah, a group of co-founders. Yeah, I remember even Nikhil, uh, when we got into Techstars, you know, telling him to also hand in his notice and quit his job. He was working. Um, I, I, truth be told, I didn't think he was going to do it. <laughs> I was like, oh, because he's also from a um, an Indian household. They both got, you know, master's first class from Imperial. They're both engineers, right? So like, uh, imagine telling uh your family like oh yeah uh, i'm gonna do this uh yeah <laughs> this yeah. platform this startup and they're like oh what is it paying is like, oh you know very very little almost yeah yeah yeah. And, uh, it's like so you're leaving your high paying job to do this it's very in those households it's it's hard to kind of like um kind of like fathom yeah yeah but yeah it's, it's testament to both of them to take the risk as well with me um I know that I say that you know I was full time for a lot before them, etc. But it's also still very hard for them to for anyone to leave like a high paying job because salary can be like a drug to people, right? Yeah, and it is that you know there's one thing which is the fear of failing, but then there's especially in these kind of households, you know, again it can be any household, but it's that fear of failing to satisfy other people's expectations. Guilt becomes an element of that, right? And you 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 feel guilty, like you're letting your parents down, or or you know, if people have paid for your education as well, you're like, oh, well, you've invested mm. in me, and now I'm not giving you a return on that investment, yeah. or I'm not taking care of you. My arc. Tell me, what is my arc, and what is the goal behind it? So my arc is a platform that enables fitness creators to train their fans at scale. And we can automatically calibrate generic training plans to a user's individual needs. And so far we've taken um, creators from minimum wage to six, seven figures. And we've also seen users uh, have some serious health transformations, overcome obesity, come out of a diabetic state, which as you know, as I was obese before, that's a that's a very powerful story. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's serious health transformation for the consumer and there's also like economic empowerment for the creator. but. The, the thing that we really focus on is that um, being able to kind of hyper-personalize fitness um, at a massive scale, right? And there isn't really an infrastructure that does that, that doesn't exist today, like an online infrastructure. Um, because right now, traditionally, to, to give you a very personalized fitness plan, you have to go to someone, a trainer, and they'll sit down and write a plan for you. And, yeah. and that makes it really expensive. And not everyone can afford a personal trainer. I know I couldn't. Um, and but what's really what makes it expensive is someone sitting down and writing it manually right um that isn't scalable um and people can't afford it but what if you can automate certain parts of that and make a system that just adapts and customizes uh the training to you specifically because fitness is not a one-size-fits-all model it has to be very personalized for the individual for it to work we don't believe that you know people fail fitness we we believe that fitness has failed people because no. it's very stuck in 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 our, these archaic type ways you know creators to this day 
are still selling like PDFs and Excel sheets for their fitness plans, which is mind-boggling to me. It's crazy. Like I remember I bought a fitness PDF over a decade ago and then I still see creators selling it now. So like you're telling me that in over 10, 13 years, you know, you'll have two creators, one from 2010, right. one in 2023, both still selling the same thing. People haven't standardized the data that comes out of fitness, which is very ripe for algorithmic design. Like that's what we're kind of really focused on is personalizing it at scale to the consumer. So A, it makes, you know, online fitness scalable for a creator and then it makes it accessible for a consumer and affordable. So they don't have to break the bank to to get personalized insights and so forth. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, it's something that I haven't really mentioned is, but I was also, you know, very large as a kid. Um, uh-huh. Probably in my in my year, I was like the, the top, always in the top five of the, the large kids. And, I, you know, I faced similar types of bullying. And I think that drove me to not want to be like that. And, you know, I remember first coming out of it and it became very hard to separate myself from that identity where when I went into university, I wasn't viewed in that way, but I still viewed myself mm-hmm. as that way because I, that's what I'd been conditioned to know for the, the first, you know, 17 years of my life. And, you know, making that transition is so powerful. I probably didn't do it in the best way. There was a lot of cardio, a lot of just not eating properly mm-hmm. because I just thought, what's, what do I know is the quickest way to do it. So this kind of accessibility and you know, it's powerful because it is way more than just that physical appearance. What is the most fulfilling part of all of this for you? It's seeing users make insane health transformations and feeling super confident in themselves. Uh, not just transformation in terms of like, you know, before and after picture of like, uh, or whatever. It's more like they're making fitness a lifestyle and, and and feeling really empowered with it and feeling like, you know, these are people who who said, oh, I've, I can't step foot in the gym. I'm too embarrassed. I'm too anxious. I'm getting too stressed. I can never pick up weights. I can never be me. And then after using uh, the app and and, and 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 training with that community of other users and also the uh, the creator being there as well, they've like completely flipped their life over. They feel a lot better um, and they just feel happy. And, and seeing that is, for me is very fulfilling because it's like these are people halfway across the world like a lot of our users in america um that something that we've built is really impacting their lives and you know from going from like an obese state to a not obese state is a big deal health-wise mm-hmm. right you'll you're, you're going to live a lot longer if they ever have you know if they have children they'll be able to you know be there for their kids or even some of these are like a lot of some of the users are mothers etc um you know, mothers of three who say, oh, I never have time for fitness and stuff like that. And then now fitness is part of their lifestyle. Um, for me, that's very fulfilling. And also seeing uh, these creators being able to to make a, a great living on it. Um, yeah. You know, we had one creator, she was living in a council flat on minimum wage, single mother as well. So it <laughs> kind of ties back to yeah, you, yeah. You growing, as growing up in a single mother household and how difficult it is. So then seeing her power her community with the app and then make a great living you know uh, over six figures is it was a very powerful moment and seeing other creators on track for that we have creators in in parts of the world where their annual salary is now their monthly uh, with us and yeah it's pretty amazing to see that again that economic empowerment for these individuals who inspire so many people on their social media channel um but haven't been able to monetize correctly or don't have the opportunity to because the, the, there is no tools or infrastructure to let them train their fan base uh, properly. And then on the consumer side, it's the health transformations. That fulfills 
uh, on both sides. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, to to be building a product and service that benefits both sides of the equation in ways that they could even imagine. Do you think, you know, the social and economical and physical, you know, kind of at all spectrums of the experiences that you went through from, you know, where it started to where you are now, do you think that journey has played, you know, a substantial role on on why you have this desire to help? Yeah. So my my auntie is actually very, very large. She's she's obese um, and struggles a lot with that. And I've always wanted to like, from a young age, help her. You know, when I lost the weight, I was like, I want to help her lose the yeah. weight. Growing up as a kid, I was very excited. I always wanted to like, you know, help people with their fitness. I remember I would even in school sometimes make some pocket money by training people um, because they saw how I transformed and they and I was always happy to help. So for me, yeah, I think it became a thing of like, I know anyone can succeed in in fitness, and I it, it just requires very specific a very specific environment and variables, etc. So then, how can you make it make that equation for that if any person balance for them and and have the variables that work in their favor? So I think that yeah, that's that's a big motivation because I, I I truly believe that anyone can succeed in fitness. They just need the right tools and the right infrastructure to do so and the right support. I've heard you touch on not just the you know physical struggles of the youth but also what accompanies that in terms of the the mental health side mm-hmm. of things that you went through what do you see the future like the future of exercise and its contribution to you know this growing topic of people's mental health i think it's very hard to uh separate like inactivity and and, and poor mental health i think activity helps a lot i'm not saying that's what will solve anyone's mental health is like yeah go to the gym and, and run etc but it's very it, it's it's been very important for a lot of people because it helps establish routine it helps establish uh, a sense of mastery and, and a, even a sense of purpose that can just help put them in the right direction or in the right trajectory to kind of uh, take care with other things in their life that maybe not might not be working as well and they start to make some the right changes etc so you, you no longer become your habits change and you are kind of almost a reflection of your habits so the the better your habits get the better um i guess you are in terms of like how you operate through life and the decisions you make and you're not kind of like um a slave to impulses mm-hmm. and, and things like that and i think inactivity is probably going to cost i think i saw this report uh 300 billion to health services by 2030 um and that that includes, you know, not just the physical side of it, but also the mental health side right. of things as well. Yeah. So if you just quantify it in that way, you can see that inactivity is a big problem. People being sedentary has a lot of different issues as well. Um, so being able to kind of have a, a safe space to do fitness is very important. Um, so the fitness industry needs to change a bit as well. Um, inclusivity is starting to go in a bit more. Um, everyone is different and how they look, how they operate and how they can look as well, right? Like genetics play a big part in in how you can look. Like not everyone might look like that before and after picture for that person, right. but you have to kind of make it work for you. And and that's why we're very passionate about personalizing uh, and using data to help you to be the best version of yourself. Mm. Um, and the best version of yourself is in this esoteric uh you know, super athlete or model of yourself. It's more like um, being better than you were yesterday and being happy and comfortable and and still kind of pushing yourself with with things that you didn't think you could do. 
And I think, you know, seeing that in our, in our community, we have lots of community chats with like the creator and their fans and seeing like it becomes such a safe space where people flourish, people even put their problems down in their lifestyle. And it's just become such a supportive uh, community where they're all kind of like gelled together by then doing, starting this fitness journey, their, their story, their arc, basically. That's what we called it, my arc, because it's uh-huh. all about your journey, your story uh, and your arc. That's amazing. And yeah, just on something you were saying, there's a, there's a good book called change your brain every day. And it, you know, mm-hmm. w- one of the things it mentions is that I think exercise has been shown to have a side-by-side comparison to treating depression as antidepressants. And oh, wow. I think what you're doing is so important because there's a lot of these simple benefits around exercise that, like you say, are still not understood because the exercise industry is still lagging behind uh, in the sense of it is quite aesthetically focused. It is changing and I think you're doing a, a brilliant thing. So all I can say is, you know, thank you so much for for the work you're doing and e- everything that you shared, you know, the really vulnerable side and your own story of why you are creating what you are. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to hear. Thank you very much. Thanks. Really appreciate that. And we do have a, a quick closing tradition on mm-hmm. this show where there's two questions that I pick from a, a list of questions that previous guests have left. Okay. So question one, What's the most bizarre or unexpected thing that you've learned about yourself on your journey to becoming a founder? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question, actually. I would say being able to take a lot of negativity and, and still keeping my head high. Yeah, I think that that's been something that I've surprised myself with the amount of setbacks and obstacles. I think it, it would have broken a lot of people. Um but being able to just kind of still keep going, through, I think, has I shocked myself because um, when I look back on paper of all the things that have happened, I was like, "How the hell did yeah. I go through that?" Jesus Christ! Yeah, it's inspiring, and you know, as people grow, there's there's always more obstacles and hate that comes, and it's yeah, it's an amazing thing to be able to control. And question two: If you could travel anywhere in the world for a adventure, and I'm going to say fitness adventure. Where would you go and what activity would you do? Um, I've always wanted to try and climb a mountain. So I think just, it'd be too basic to say Mount Everest. Let's pick another one. Um, actually, I don't know many mountains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll try to uh, climb a mountain somewhere. I'd, I'd love to, I've never visited Machu Picchu. Nah, uh, so I'd love nice. to go and see Machu Picchu. Me too, actually. I was, yeah, it's always been on my list of things. So, hey, maybe we'll sit down this time next year and we'll talk <laughs> about how we did uh, the Inca Trail. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Again, thanks so much, Peter. It's been amazing to have you on. And um, I'll put your contact details in the show notes. So anyone wants to find out more either about you or about my arc, um, they can reach you on there. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you very much. Just a quick one from me before we finish off. Firstly, a huge thank you. Because if you're hearing this, then that means you've listened through until the end of the episode. And that tells me that there is something that you've taken away from this conversation, something worthwhile enough for you to listen right through until the end. That already means a lot to me. It means that the show is doing what it's promised to provide you with what you're expecting of it. And in return, I would love if you haven't done so already to click the follow button on whichever platform you're listening to this on. Of course, if it is Apple Podcasts, it would mean an awful lot to me if you could leave a review as well. It takes 30 seconds that can really compound into bigger and better guests in the future. If you've enjoyed this one, then you'll also love episode 49 by Laura Lake Adebisi, embracing mixed identities and finding your voice through words and acting. That's it from me, and I'll see you very soon.